Good morning. My name is Janice Wood. I'm one of the staff pastors here at the Vineyard, and uh, it is so good to worship with you this morning on a rainy uh, morning in October. It is good to be here. We are in the middle of a series on, we're not in the middle, we're at the tail end of a series on the book of James, and we're going to finish it up today, and uh, I'm excited to have the opportunity to do that. So we're going to start right in the scripture. If you brought your Bibles with you, why don't you turn to James chapter 5. We're going to deal with the last seven verses. Uh, if you have your devices, you can follow along there, or you're always welcome to just watch the screens. Those of you joining us online, uh, it should show up for you there as well. All right, James 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins." The answers that I believe that James is giving in this last seven uh, verses are the answer to this question. Who needs church? Who needs church? In this year of 2020, 2021, I can't think of anything more relevant. Who needs church? You know, we've kind of learned now, a lot of us, some of you weren't able to do this, but some of us learned to work from home. Wasn't that exciting? And if you worked from home long enough and it got things done, the question is, why are we ever going to go back, right? Um, if you are into uh, virtual learning, right, from kindergarten to college, we've dealt with this question about, you know, virtual learning, hybrid learning, whatever. And, uh, you know, if that's working, you know, maybe in terms of the church, do we all just need an iReady module, a spiritual module that we could self-pace our way through and kind of learn on our own? Or if you're from my era, the SRAs, remember that? Little self-paced modules that we did on our own. It, you know, for, what is really to be gained by in-person work? What is to be gained by in-person school, college, church? Why is that important? Now, I, I want you to know this. I am incredibly thankful that my salvation is not dependent on any of y'all. Do you know what I mean? I, no, it's not even dependent on my pastor. My salvation is dependent on Jesus dying on that cross for my sins, and I surrendered my life to him. And if you haven't done that, I want to invite you. That's where this all starts, right? You don't need the church for salvation. That is something you handle between you and God. But I will say this, that the church as a group of believers who actually meet is distinctly what God had in mind, distinctly what Jesus had in mind when he said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Not on this rock, I will build iReady stations. 
I will build my church. I'm going to do this together. And we know this is their MO because even in the third chapter of James, right, when we were learning about favoritism, the real thing is, he says, when someone comes into your meeting wearing fine clothes, don't pay them special attention, right? They were having meetings. And in this chapter, if you're gonna talk about calling the elders to come and pray over you, we have to admit that there was some sort of structure. Now, I don't know exactly what that structure looks like, and we can debate all day long about you know, what eldership means and who gets to be that and all the rest of it, but the point is there were leaders and there was structure to who was in the group, and they called them occasionally to come and actually touch them and lay hands on them and to pray over them. There were meetings, there were places where we actually met together. And it is true that the church is not a building. There's nothing sacred about the building, but church is a group of believers who meet and minister to each other. The church is a group of believers who meet and minister to each other. Now, for those of you watching online, I am not, I am not complaining about the fact that we have the opportunity to self-distance during this time. I'm telling you there's a time coming back when we are going to meet together. And next week, can I tell you about Vinestock? Did you know Vinestock is happening next week? It is our opportunity. We do this once a year, and it is so much more meaningful in the middle of COVID. We meet outdoors one Sunday, one service, 1030, bring a chair, and we're going to have worship outside. We're going to have the message outside. It's going to be a bit of a picnic atmosphere. There's going to be free food. There's going to be games. Show up. There will be more details. You can get them out at, the, um, at our connection desk or online, wherever. No church in the building next week because we're going to meet together as best we can. And for those of you who haven't been able to come back in the building, maybe you can come to that. You can feel safe. Wear a mask. There will be pumpkins for you to gather distanced from each other. That'll be your hub. Put your little people around that. Other people will create distance. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Because church is distinctly a group of believers who meet and minister to each other. So the question for 20. 20 and 2021 perhaps is this why do we continue to be a group of believers who meet and minister together and how do we keep up the relational aspects of what it means to be a community of faith how do we manage that in this time if you've been around here very long you know that pastor joe likes to say that you do not have to be a member or a part of a church to be in the body of christ you do not have to be a, a member of a church to be a christian but if you are not a member of a local church, you are operating as a spiritual orphan. You're operating as a spiritual orphan. There are aspects of the family, the church family, that you're missing out on, and there's really no way to, to, to make that sound any prettier, right? There, there are things that are missing there, I, and I don't think I'm overstating it when I say it this way. There are things that God will not do for you except through another person. There are aspects of our relationship with God that we cannot receive on earth except through other people. Now, if that sounds like heresy, let me, let me stop you a minute. I am not saying that God is limited. I am not saying that God can't do something. I am telling you God chooses to not do something except through people. 
in this day and age. Now, in the Old Testament, it was not uncommon for God to send angels to minister to his people, right? Elijah's having a bad day and, and sitting under a broom bush or whatever, and God sends angels to minister to him. In Jesus' day, Jesus had ministers, uh, angels minister to him after his temptation in the wilderness, after he sent the devil packing, remember? Resist the devil and he will flee. Then angels came and ministered to him. And then also in Gethsemane, when he was in great despair and anguish, um, angels came and ministered to him there. In the church days, in the early church, we are instructed to minister to each other. We are instructed to behave in a ministering fashion toward each other. And there are gifts of the Spirit that are given to us that are frankly group gifts. They're not for our personal consumption. They're made for the body of Christ. So there are ways that God wants to care for you that you will miss without the church. There are experiences God wants you to have that you will miss without the church because much of what we're asked to do in following Jesus requires the community of faith. So if you're taking notes this morning, and I encourage you to do that, I'm a teacher by trade, and so I happen to think that you retain more, you learn more when you jot things down or when you put them in your phone or whatever it is you're going to do. But if you need a title for this morning, here it is, Church Community Matters. I believe that's what James is telling us in this passage right here. Church community matters. And we're going to look at how James describes that to the believers that he was writing to. And I only have two major points for you this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, as a church community, we stand in the gap for each other. That's one of our jobs. As a church community, we are called to stand in the gap for each other. We need to be the right person at the right time. Have you ever had somebody show up and be the right person at the right time for you? You know, just this week, I was helping uh, one of my children. I, uh, she needed me to, to come help her pick up something that her vehicle couldn't carry, and I got there, and we loaded up, and then we realized her car wouldn't start. And I'm like, shoot, I didn't have my jumper cables with me. I grew up on a farm. That's what you're supposed to have. And I didn't have jumper cables with me. And so we did what most people do in those situations. We just called family members and we said, hey, come jump. And, you know, and thankfully it was not a bad weather. You know, nobody was hurting except that both of us were in a hurry. You know, I had small group coming to my house. She had things going on. And, and so we're like, mm, we, need, we need this car started. We are pretty sure we know it just needs a jump. And we're waiting on a family member to bring a jumper cables. And instead, some random fellow runs out of a store and to this day I don't really know if he's real he could have been an angel in disguise I have no idea but he showed up and he said hey I can take care of that hang on and he runs to his car and he brings something I had never seen before because I thought you needed jumper cables and two vehicles and that you know they had to talk to each other no this guy had some power booster pack you know from some space war I don't know and he you know he plugs it up and, and sure enough we're fired up and ready to go and I said holy moly you need one of those for your birthday or something I'm buying you one of those forever um, but that was pretty cool the right man at the right time somebody was the right person at the right time we needed that and usually I can count on family but you know what this guy beat him to it sometimes the church beats family members to your need have you noticed that Sometimes that's important. Have you been the right person at the right time for someone? Have you shown up there? Have you known what it was to have someone in need, but have you also known what it is to be there at the right time? James says that's what we need to be, and this is how he says it. Is anyone among you, is there anybody in your group with issues? Are you in trouble? Pray. Are you happy? Praise. Are you sick? Call the leaders, have them pray over you. Are you sinning? 
confess. Are you wandering or have you seen somebody wandering? Restore that person. These are things that we do inside of the church community and and it doesn't happen without that. This is how we need to respond. We need the church community for encouragement and support. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans. Romans 12, 15 through 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Now, I'm on a kick kind of for uh, uh, memorizing scripture lately, right? Uh, I've got a journal thing going on, and I've encouraged my small group leaders to be uh, memorizing scripture. Sometimes we get old and we think we can't memorize scripture, and that's, that's baloney. You can still memorize scripture. I'm telling you, you're going to need these two verses in about two weeks. Are you with me? We're going to have an election. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Live in harmony with one another. Put that in your head. We're going to need it. Somebody ain't going to be happy. It's going to be all right. Okay? Live in harmony with one another. Why do we mourn with someone who mourns? When we mourn with someone who mourns, we validate their grief. We legitimize their grief. We carry some of that weight with them. Right? When we're sad with somebody, we're being sad with them. Some of you know that my sister-in-law lost her husband recently, within the last month. And it was, a, it was a bit of a surprise thanks to this crazy disease that's everywhere. And I will never forget what she said as we were gathered together to view the body. It was just a, a private family gathering, was gathered together to view the body. And so the grief was fresh and, and visible and people were crying. And, and I'll never forget what she said. She turned around and she said, it helps me so much to see you all crying. It comforts me so much. Because it means that you get it. You knew how special he was. That helps my heart. That you recognize what a loss I'm having right now because you're feeling that loss too. When we grieve with people, I used to think I wasn't allowed to cry for somebody else because I was like one-upping their grief or something. If they weren't crying, I wasn't supposed to because you can only match their grief. No, when we grieve with someone, we're saying you should be sad. It's okay to be sad. I'm gonna be sad with you and I'm gonna help carry that with you. That's an appropriate thing to do. We comfort people. We let them know they're not crazy for experiencing loss and we understand that. You know, people used to have professional mourners. I'm not suggesting we go back to that. That feels a little contrived and and exploitive in my opinion. However, if you've ever driven down the bypass and seen a funeral procession and, and decided to stop and pull over, I would suggest that you are professionally mourning. You're paying respect. You're going, I don't know that person, but I legitimize your pain. I think that's a sad thing. I'm going to honor that for a hot minute before I go on to the grocery store. There's nothing wrong with that. As a community of faith, we need to honor each other's pain and and to help them grieve well. Because I'm telling you this, if people don't grieve well, they're going to grieve later. It's going to come back. It's going to come back and get you. So help people grieve well. Another thing we do in the community of faith when we help people carry grief is we pick up their daily tasks for them. That's what happens when you take food. They're not hungry. Nobody's hungry when somebody dies. (laughs) You're ta- but you're taking care of the daily tasks. You're showing up with food. You're doing some laundry. You're running errands. You're mowing their grass so that they have space to do the grieving. They have space to be present in the grieving. And that's where, that's where they need to be. I didn't tell the story in the first one, so you get a bonus, right? I have a, I have a little cousin nephew who likes to run. He's a runner. Um, he, he really likes to run. He likes to run 100 miles at a time. 
I didn't know people did that. I think they're kind of weird, but whatever. Anyway, he likes to run, and he likes, so he was doing this 100-mile run um, that was down in the Keys, the Florida Keys, and it ended up down in Key West. And so uh, his family was there as his support team. He has several siblings that are all medical people, and, and, uh, and they were helping train with him or whatever. And, and, and I was just watching vicariously on social media as they were posting how he was doing and whatever. And, and he did really good. He got tired around mile 70. And at mile 70, they're one, he's struggling a little bit, you know? And, and a couple of his brothers, he has several siblings, one of his brothers jumped in and ran with him 20 miles, and he petered out. And then another brother jumped in and ran the last 10 with him. And somebody said, why are they running with him? What are, what are they doing? And, and uh, his sister explained, they're pacing him. And we're like, well, we're not runners. What does that mean? Do we need to make him go faster or what? They go, they go, no, when you run with somebody in this kind of a situation, what you're doing is you're watching out for the landscape. You're watching out for the potholes. You're watching out for anything he might run into because at this stage of the game, he can't think about anything else but one foot in front of the other. When we're grieving, we're lucky to put one foot in front of the other. And as a community of faith, we're watching out for all the rest of it. That's what it means to support people when we're mourning with people and and we're doing that. And the church community should be able to do that. We're also going to rejoice with people who rejoice. And strangely enough, I would wager this is tougher to do than mourning. It sounds easier, but it's tougher. Because see, it's easy to be sad for somebody who loses their job. It's harder to be happy for someone who gets your job. It's tougher to be happy for someone who's becoming a bride when all you've ever been is a bridesmaid. It's tougher to go to the baby shower when you're never going to get a baby. It's tougher to go watch people progressing in life when you feel like you're getting left behind. You know what I'm saying? We think it's easy to rejoice with other people, but we rejoice with people until they pass us up. And then it's harder. It's harder to do that. But I'm telling you, there is something important about this because everybody needs someone to put a party hat on and celebrate with them when life is going good. It is oddly excruciating to have a joy in your life and no one to share it with. Have you been there? It's the weirdest feeling. To have something that is going good in your life, I have felt that. There have been things in my life that God did, God called me to, and the people closest to me really couldn't share that with me. You know, they, they just, either they, they were convicted that what I was being called into wasn't for me or what, didn't match their beliefs or whatever, and they could not celebrate that thing with me. There is an excruciating element to not having people wear party hats. As a community of faith, get a hat. Let's celebrate each other. Let's celebrate the good things that are going on. I think that that's why COVID has been so hard on us. Weddings, graduations, babies during COVID, all these things that represent completions and new start points in life, and you don't have a big enough party, we, can't, we aren't allowed to celebrate it. And, and it's been tough on people to go through that. As a community of faith, we've got to be there. As a community of faith, we need to be there when someone's in trouble. When someone's in trouble, when someone is discouraged, We need to strengthen them. And I'm going to pull an example from the Old Testament to help explain this point. Um, This is from 1 Samuel 23, and we're going to be talking about David. Early in David's life, David who would become king of Israel, early in David's life, he's on the run from King Saul who wants to kill him. This is what it says. While David was at Horish, I'm in 1 Samuel 23, while David was in Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. (laughs) 
And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. You might underline that in your Bibles. Find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You know you will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Now here's the situation. Saul had, had wandered away from what God wanted and so God chose David as the next king, but he was not in the biological line. Jonathan is the prince. Jonathan is heir to the throne, but Jonathan became very good friends with David. David had been anointed to be king and Saul feels the threat of him coming. And so um, their friendship is thwarted a little bit by the fact that one of them's dad is trying to kill him. So they don't spend a whole lot of time together. And this is what happens is Jonathan shows up and strengthens him in God. And it takes a couple of things to do that. Number one, he humbles himself. When you're rejoicing with someone who is going to inherit something better than you, someone who's going to pass you up, you have to humble yourself in order to strengthen them. And number two, Jonathan goes in there and he stands up against family. He stands up against the family pressure of his own parents because he is going to be there for this person. There are times when we stand in the gap for people in church because family is not there for them. It would be nice if they were, and I would contend with you that sometimes when our family is there for us and they are really strong, we sometimes miss the significance of the church family because we're depending on our own families too much. And we miss what the community of faith has for us. So he stands up against family pressure. He can see the truth in spite of that. And finally, he helps him find strength in God. He does not help David find strength in David. He doesn't, he doesn't flatter David. He doesn't blow sunshine on David and say, you are so great. What a good guy. You're gonna be the most awesome king ever. I just can't wait until you're king and tell him how great he's gonna be. No, he helps him find strength in God. You don't help people by flattering them, patting them on the back, and telling them that they never do anything wrong. We need honest people in our life. We'll talk about that more in a minute. I think it's interesting that the original language here actually says, he strengthened his hand in God. Who do you strengthen someone's hand in God? Who is that person that you strengthen their hand in God? What an incredible thing. The other reality, and this is a final one, is that David was hiding out in a cave at this point. He's in refuge, he's in the desert, he's hiding out in a cave. He has approximately 600 men around him at that point. And I would assume that they have a perimeter of some sort to make sure that Saul doesn't get through. So if Saul, if Jonathan is going out there to see him, he's gonna have to get through the front line. David has to let his guys know to let Jonathan through the front line. If we are going to be encouraged in Christ, we're going to have to let people in the front lines. We're gonna to have to let them in the walls that we've built around ourselves. We're gonna to have to let them know when we're discouraged. We're gonna to have to let them know that we could use that help. Because if we don't let people in, we're not going to get that benefit that comes from a church community. So God uses us all to carry each other's loads, but we have to let people in. Finally, when we need healing, when we need healing, God responds to prayers of our church community. James says, call the elders to pray, anoint with oil, offer prayer in faith. And here's the thing, healing is a group gift. Now in general, I hate group projects, but that's another story, right? This is a group gift. Healing is a gift of the Spirit that is given and distributed as the Spirit designs. And here at the Vineyard, we believe that God still heals. We expect God to still, still heal. We are not cessationists. We do not believe that the gifts have ceased. 
And as a matter of fact, I have seen healings. I saw God heal my own granddaughter of a, a charred skin on her little hand when she reached up and, and touched a cookie pan, at, came out of the oven at 350 degrees as a toddler. She grabbed it, her hand was charred, and we prayed over her hand instinctively. We didn't even do anything formal. And I watched it go, it disappeared. And she quit screaming. And she looked at her hand like, she remembered something, but she couldn't figure it out. And I would hardly believe it myself, except that your pastor, my husband, saw it as well. I've seen God heal. Oddly enough, he healed my granddaughter of something that was not at all life-threatening. At the same time that we had been praying fervently for someone in our church to be healed of cancer, and that man died. I'm not going to tell you God heals every single time. I'm going to tell you he can heal. He'll choose when he wants to heal, and it's a group gift. If you, if, if it were a group gift, here's the deal. If you have the gift of healing, you don't just run around going, oh, my arm hurts really bad. Heal my arm, God. It's not, otherwise, people with the gift of healing, think about it, would be the healthiest people in the room. The gift of healing is not for you. The gift of healing is for the body of believers. It says the apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh and he prayed for it and God did not take it away. I have to wonder what would have happened if the community of faith had gathered around Paul and prayed for him. I don't know. Maybe they did, but I have to wonder about that. But it's a group gift. It's not something that we do on our own. It takes the team. Now, listen, this is a weird gift, and this passage gets abused all the time. This is not a formula for how you get healed. They, they want to say, well, the person has to be praying in the right, you know, has to be praying correctly and have no, no sin, and the person has to be righteous enough on a scale of one to 10 in order this to happen. And if you don't get healed, then one of those things was off. No. Here at the Vineyard, we believe in the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. There are times when the kingdom of God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are times when the perfection of heaven breaks through into the brokenness of now and puts things in order like he did for my, my granddaughter. And then there are times when the, the, the brokenness of now is only going to be corrected in heaven. It'll be taken care of then when the kingdom finally comes. Right? So there's a now and a not yet. And that's not a cop-out. That's honestly the reality of the whole thing. Otherwise, if the gift of healing was real, then nobody would ever die. Right? People do go meet Jesus. It's okay. Nonetheless, he uses our fervent prayers to bring healing. Point number two. So first of all, we stand in the gap for people. Number two, as a church community, we reveal the gap for each other. We reveal the gap for each other. Now, this part isn't a lot of fun, and some churches would avoid it altogether because this is often called accountability. Accountability, right? We tend to live in this world with an attitude of what I'm doing is none of your business. You just leave me alone. I'm doing my thing. You're doing your thing. And to be fair, some churches have made people's misdeeds, you know, fodder for gossip and made their misdeeds the business of everybody. And that's not the point either. But this is how James says it. Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sin. Here's the problem. We tend to be most responsive to God when we're in trouble. But when life settles down and you get a little bit of money and you begin to feel secure about things and, and you begin to get bored and you begin to get arrogant about the things that you've accomplished or whatever, the point is all of us are prone to wander. I love that hymn, Come Thou Fount. Remember these words? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. See, we've got to remember that we can't do this all on our own. We, we need people around us. And some of us have this idea that I don't need anybody. I've got it figured out. I'd rather do it my own way. And I'm telling you, the church needs us. We need the church for accountability. We need it for accountability. I need folks to keep, uh, to keep me honest. I need someone who cares enough about me to keep me honest. I need someone who will point out my blind spots. I need somebody to help me keep perspective. Let's look at Dan- David's life once again at this period of his life. At this point, David has uh, become king. He's um, had a bunch of kids. He's got a bunch of wives. And it says in 2 Samuel, and I'm going to paraphrase this all, the story, 2 Samuel 11, in the spring when kings go off to war, because whether you like it or not, war is a seasonal activity, right? So when the kings go off to war, David stayed home. David stayed home, and despite the fact that he had wives and concubines, he's roaming around the top of his palace, rooftop, bored out of his mind, and he sees a woman bathing. And uh, so he sends somebody from the palace to go see who that is. Somebody goes and checks and comes back and says, dude, leave her alone. She's the wife of one of your best fighting men, one of David's 30 mighty men. Uh, She's married. He blows right through that and says, bring her anyway. She comes to the palace. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And now he's got a problem, and instead of owning up to his problem, he instead uh, brings the man back from the battlefront and hopes that he will go and be with his wife and cover their sin. That doesn't work. So now he says, you know what, Joab, put that man in the front lines where he will be killed, and he is killed. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Here's the line I want us to hear. The Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan happens to be the prophet of the day. He, I wouldn't call him David's pastor, but I would call him the, the highest religious official of the time, the one who would reveal what God said and, and would commonly come and give counsel to the king. Now, you had to be careful because sometimes kings didn't like the counsel you gave them and, and could get a little salty about that. And so when Nathan shows up, notice this, he doesn't accuse David of anything. He says, David, I have a story to tell you. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a rich man and a poor man, and a rich man had guests coming, and instead of taking one of his flock to feed him, he reached over and took the pet uh, lamb of his neighbor who only had one lamb and fed that to his guests. And David said, well, that's terrible. What a, bear, what a terrible thing to do. And Nathan says, you are the man. And he recounts what he did, and he tells him that God is not happy with him about this. And then in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses. Nathan goes to David, and then David confesses. Nathan reveals the gap in David's life between what David says and what David does. We need people in our lives who will reveal that gap to us, who will point out the differences between what we claim and how we're really living and seeing where, the, where that gap is. Who do you have that in your, in your life? Do you have a Nathan Do you have a Nathan who can ask you hard questions? Or do you pick easy friends? Do you have easy friends who pretty much do the same things you do, so they're never gonna challenge you on anything? And, um, or, or maybe you bully people to the point that you're unapproachable and they would never challenge you with anything anyway. Does anyone in your life have permission to speak to you in that way? Think about the friendships where you invest deeply. 
See, these are isolating times, but these do not need to be times when we are isolated in our faith. For that matter, does anyone in this, in your friend group, do they know what God has been speaking to you lately? Do you share with them on that level? Or how about this? Do they know how long it's been since God has said anything to you personally that you're in a dry moment and you haven't been sharing with anyone because you don't got anything to share? Do you have somebody who is that deep with you? See, see, when we're talking about restoring someone who's wandering from the faith, it's not about whacking somebody with a stick. It's not about kicking people out who aren't conforming. It's about loving someone enough to steer them back to the faith and to say, dude, I don't want you to fall here. I don't want you to wander away. I, I care about that. And I'm telling you, I'm, I, I really believe that sin separates from us from Jesus. And if we believe that, why aren't we pointing that out to the people we love? Not like going, you should stop that. Nathan didn't walk in and do that. Nathan was more careful about the way that he did that. It takes guts to say to someone, I'm concerned about how much you're drinking. I'm concerned about that relationship that you're justifying. I smell a rat there. And I'm just gonna tell you as a friend, I think you're getting into dangerous waters. Do you have somebody who will tell you that? Somebody who says, you know what? I'm concerned about the way you handle money. I'm, I'm worried about you being dishonest with either the way you report it, the way you make it, the deals that you cut. I'm concerned about that. Do you have people who can, see, it takes guts to do that. It takes guts to be that person who will reveal the gap. And I think there's a few things that we can learn here about what Nathan did. First of all, it takes risk. It takes risk. You know, how much are you willing to risk in a friendship to do that? To say to somebody, hey, are you all right? Do you really think this is a good idea? I feel like God keeps bringing you to mind and I, I would not be honest with God if I didn't ask you about this particular issue. What are you willing to lose in order to confront a friend? I'll tell you this, Nathan risked a lot when he went to David. I guarantee it, he risked a lot. But he also takes tact. It takes risk and it takes tact. Nathan didn't walk in and accuse him and bully him and, and condemn him. He just says, this is what God says, dude. God revealed this to me and I, I need you to know. David was a man of power and probably had gotten pretty unapproachable by then. Here's the other thing, it takes relationship. To confront someone, to, to demonstrate someone the gap between what they say and what they're doing Yes, I go to the vineyard, I'm following Jesus, but I'm doing all of this. It takes a lot to go in there and do that. You know what it really takes? It takes relationship. Now we're back to community. Now we're back to community. Because if you don't do the hard work of mourning with people when they mourn, and, and grieving with people when they grieve, and celebrating with them when they celebrate, and rejoicing with them when they rejoice, you don't have that clout to go into their life and speak with them. But when we do that other stuff, when we do that mutual support for people, then we do have clout to go in and say to someone, I care about you. I'm not just trying to make sure that everybody in the, in the seats are, are pure. I care about you and your life, and I care about you wandering. So David, God sent Nathan to David. Who has he sent you to? See, God uses us to bring people back. It is our responsibility to reach people who are wandering from the truth, not just finding lost folks who've never reached Jesus. I'm talking about restoring people who are in our midst who've wandered or are wandering, who have begun to justify sinful actions, who have started to believe their own press, who begin to feel above the boundaries or that they can handle temptation without failing and they've gotten a little arrogant and they're thinking too highly of themselves. 
Jude 22 and 23 says this, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. I love that line. Snatching someone from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even that clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. Do we care enough to snatch people back? And finally, and this is the more painful one, James instructs believers to confess our sins. Confess our sins. David comes clean with Nathan and with God. If you don't believe me, read uh, Psalm 51 that he writes right after this incident. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He tells Nathan that. He didn't just go pray in a closet, right? Now, we get confession because it's integral to our, our repentance and, and our salvation, right? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We understand confession, but we have the Protestant faith, believe in confession by ourselves in our closet with nobody but us and God. And we forget about this verse in James that says, confess to one another. And I have to say, why would God ask us to do that? Why would I ask? Now, we're not doing the Catholic thing. I'm not confessing to a priest so that he can give me a, a certain amount of penance to do. No, that's not what we're doing here. We're confessing our sins to one another, and I think this is the reason. I'm convinced that confessing our sin to each other requires humility that is necessary in the community of faith. It takes a humility that is necessary in the community of faith. It takes humility to confess. It takes trust to know somebody is not going to leverage it against you. It takes integrity. You believe somebody's not going to use that and, and, and tear you down with it. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I want a powerful and effective prayer over me. I don't know about you. I want that. I know sometimes we prefer anonymity. We think we don't want to share that with anybody. We don't really know those people. We can just confess to God. But I'm telling you, that can be a cop-out. In the community of faith, we care about each other. You know, we had a women's retreat a couple years ago that um, we always have a really powerful ministry time at this retreat. We had about 80 ladies there and, and we were in this beautiful lodge and the balcony was the prayer stations. And we had women all lined out there ready to uh, receive anybody who wanted prayer. And usually we have fabulous worship music going on and people go out there and they ask for prayer for whatever they're struggling with or, or prayer for, you know, things that they're anxious about or whatever. And this time I said, no, what? you know what? I taught on this. I said, we're, we're gonna do confession tonight. So tonight when you go out and find somebody to pray over you, you're going to confess whatever God's put on your heart. And the prayer people have already been instructed, and they're instructed this morning. The prayer people are not to commentate on anything that is being confessed. No commentary necessary. If somebody comes and confesses anything, I don't care, then they're just going to pray. They're just going to pray over you. They're going to pray that forgiveness over you. So folks, I'm going to invite us to do the, that this morning. And that may make you uncomfortable, and that's okay with me. Because if God is doing business with us, one of the things that keeps us from doing community is we're harboring things in our own hearts that really need to be out there. And if you have a weight that you are carrying, you know who you are. And you would love to just dump it off somewhere. Today's your day. Today's your day. We have people who are lined up out there in the, in the commons area to receive you for prayer. For those of you online, if you are also feeling the weight of something and you need to confess that, go to the website. Make sure you're on the, watching from the website. Go down to the prayer chat button. There is somebody there on the other side ready to pray with you.
They're not going to commentate on your prayer. They're not going to give you any commentary. They're not going to give you any advice. If you're repenting and you're confessing, they're just going to pray forgiveness over you and you're going to know you're forgiven when you walk out of here. How fabulous is that? Because that's what the community of faith does. And that's what we're invited to do. We stand in the gap for each other. We're not afraid to reveal the gap for each other. But then we're going to close the gap by praying for each other. So let's come to our feet. Worship team's going to play this last song in Christ alone, because it really is you making right with God, but he's choosing it to do special things through the power of the people and the community of faith. So I invite you right now, if you wanna go out and get some prayer, make your way out there.